Good morning, Rio. My name is Sam. I'm a pastor here on staff. Um, we are in our third or fourth week in Ephesians, and I absolutely love this book. Going through it, and rather than just treating it academically, but really engaging the truth of what God is telling us, it's kind of overwhelming. You know, a couple of weeks ago, my daughter, who we, I call Sweet Sweet, she's five years old. She made, she loves making cards and she made this beautiful card out of construction paper and had cut up all kinds of images and made a sun and a heart and all these pretty things to put on this card. And she runs up to her mom, my wife Laura, and she goes, here mom, she's really excited. And Laura opens the card and it says, mom, I am so excited for Valentine's Day because I get to make you a card. And you're kind of like, but you just did. Like, The reason why I share that story is there's a lot of ways in which the Christian is saying, oh, I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for that day because on that day, then I'm going to get to experience some of your love. Then I'm going to get to experience... You in a whole new way. And all that's true. But you know what the book of Ephesians is coming to us and letting us in on this amazingly profound secret that that's your truth, that's your reality right now in Christ. We don't have to wait for glory. We don't have to wait for heaven to draw near to the immeasurable love of God. It's ours now. You know, we go through this life, we, we kind of go through this life thinking, man, I wish my life would be this, or my life would be this, or, or that I could have more of this. And if I were to hand you a magic pen, and as you wrote out your story, it just became reality for you, what would you write? If, I get, if you got five minutes with this pen, you could write whatever about your life, and then it came to be, what would you write? In a hurry, quick. And if we're honest, most people in our country and probably lots of us in the church are going to spend those five minutes writing, I want financial security. I want this. I want this. I want this. And I want to make my life beautiful. You know what Ephesians 1 is? Ephesians 1 is that chapter where God lets us behind the curtain and we find out that from before the creation of the world, the Lord had a story in his heart that just delighted him. He calls it the good pleasure of his will. It's what gets him excited. It is what absolutely delights him. And it's you. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's you. When God has the pen, you know what he writes? I can't wait to pour out for them. It's not, look, look, me, 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 do this for me, 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 me. It's, oh, look what I get to do for them. We find these these words like this in Ephesians 1 that he predestined us 
for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. Before the first stars go into motion, the good pleasure of his will, the great delight of his will is to predestine you to be his child. That brings him delight. That's what God does with his pen. God chose you in him before the foundations of the world. Your name, your identity was on the mind and heart of God before he said, let there be light. Do you believe that? He is unfolding a plan for the fullness of time. And you know what this plan involves? Oh man, you just wait, you get this. Like Ephesians 1 lays it out. It's all him. It's all his goodness for us. And so we find that in Christ and the identity of a son, if we'll give our lives to him, if we'll yield and just be in Christ, surrendered to him, get, this is what we get. He blesses us in Christ with every, hear that, every spiritual blessing. He chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The mystery of his will, you ever wonder what God's up to? The mystery of his will is set forth in Christ. He seeks to unite and reconcile all things to himself in Christ. In Christ, you have an inheritance that can't be taken, can't be shaken, And in Christ, you are sealed. Your salvation is sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you get what that means? Like you read Ephesians 1 and it's laying down this, the delight of God. What from the foundations of the world has, has made his heart just thrilled. Do you know what verbs it gives to us in Ephesians 1? You hope, you hear, and you believe. That's it. That's what he wants from you. And the rest of it, in Christ, he does it all. He is the great hero. And all this sounds like hyperbole, but it's the word of God. And so when you get to chapter 2, Ephesians 1 has, has laid down this picture where God is the hero. Man, his love for you is amazing. His will, his plan, his sovereignty. It's, it's overwhelming. And when you get to Ephesians 2, the first words are, and you. It's like I remember when I was in trouble as a kid. I'd walk in, my dad would be in his recliner. And if he lowered the newspaper, I can picture it in my mind. He lowered the newspaper, he took off his glasses, and if he referred to me with my middle name included, it was on. I was about to get some humility. (laughs) And so God has painted this unbelievable picture in Ephesians 1. This is his story. And then Ephesians 2 comes and says... I love the way the NIV translate it. As for you, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Wow. Ephesians 1 
<laughs> the whole hope of it is that we're alive in Christ. But the reality is every single person in this room at one point or another was dead in sin and trespasses. And when we hear sin, what do, everybody wants to cringe away from that word. We don't like the word sin because it sounds religious and archaic. But let me tell you what sin is. God had originally designed every person in this room to do what Jesus says are the two most important commandments. To love God and to love others. And at the fall, our nature changed. And what was outwardly facing love became this inward bent. And now everything's about me. I'm self-obsessed. I, I can't, the insecurities, the fear, the anxieties, the anger, even some of the love I do for selfish motivations. I'll love you because I benefit, right? Everything is inwardly bent. That is sin. And when God says that you're dead and your trespasses, hear that. It's actually a really good word. What does it mean to trespass? It means that you're found somewhere that you don't belong. God had written your story. He'd made this beautiful story for each and every one of us. And what do we do? We leave the place that he had designed for us. And we want to go it alone. We're trespassing. We are not as we are supposed to be. But dead. This isn't you're sick and your sins and trespasses. It's not you caught the flu. You are dead. And your trespasses and sins. That seems like a strong word. You know, it reminds us of Genesis 2, right out of the gates in the creation, when everything is still wonderful and beautiful. And God comes to Adam and Eve, and what does he say to them? He says, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for, listen, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And if you've read the Bible, you know, hey, wait a minute. Adam and Eve didn't die. They, they went on. They had a family. They, they had children. Like They didn't drop dead the moment they ate from the tree. But they were dead. Spiritually. Spiritually speaking, they started taking on all of the attributes that you and, you and I associate with dead people. I remember this in myself before I came to Christ. What, is it, what does that mean? It means that you cannot process spiritual nourishment. The promises of God mean nothing to you. You're not fed by the word, by the bread of his word. And you slowly begin to stiffen. Your life begins to lose its color and its beauty and you slowly begin to disintegrate. Everything in your life is just falling apart and decomposing. You don't respond to touch. You have no eyes to see, no ears to hear the Word of God, the spiritual realities around you. You're dead to them. You mock them. And the reality is, if you're outside of Christ, you are dead in sin. It's a rose. It's a pretty rose. 
If I brought this home to my wife, she'd probably think I'd been up to something. (laughs) But this is a pretty rose. It's beautiful red. It's got nice green leaves on it. When I stand up here and say that if you're not in Christ, you're dead, that sounds harsh. I know lots of people who are not in Christ that are absolutely beautiful, wonderful. They seem alive. They're like this rose. You know that a rose bush lives 25, 30 years? The oldest rose bush in the world is 700 years old in Germany. The moment this was plucked from the ground, the moment it was removed from the place that God had designed it to find life, seven to ten days, this will be brown, stiff, hard, ugly. For all intents and purposes, this is dead. Why? Because it has been ripped apart from its life source. Now, I can put wet paper towels on the bottom of it. It'll live a little longer. I could put it in a vase. I could put little nutrients in the vase. It'll live a little longer. But for all intents and purposes, we all know it's a goner. This rose is dead, even though it looks beautiful on the surface. You see, this metaphor carries on through the Bible when the Psalms launch, and it's talking about this is a righteous person. This is what a person who has real life looks like. This is the way the Psalms begin. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. You hear that? Who did the planting, by the way? Does the tree go, look where I decided to plant myself? No, the Creator has planted the tree near streams of water, and it yields. When it's near that stream, it yields an abundance of fruit. It looks beautiful. Its leaf does not wither. It does not die. Jesus picks up on this metaphor in John 15 when he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Hear this. Whoever abides, whoever's rooted in me, whoever has relationship with me, whoever finds themselves in Christ, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Outside of me you're dead. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch. And unlike that tree planted by waters that does not wither, if you're apart from him, you're thrown away like a branch and you're withering. You're a dead man walking. And so when he starts this, I want you to hear, like, this is heavy stuff. (laughs) Happy Sunday morning. And you were, if you're in Christ, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That means all of us following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And man, this sounds really harsh, doesn't it? I mean, we're following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. We're sons and daughters of disobedience. And you know what I find interesting? When he gives these descriptors, We're following the course of the world. Following. 
We're following the prince of the power of the air. We're getting back in line. We're sons of disobedience. It's like a stream. You know, you can, it's, it's going somewhere. And if you throw something in the stream, it's just going to follow right after where the stream is taking it. You can throw anything dead in a stream that's leading off of the waterfalls and the cliff of destruction. And anything dead is going to go right along with the current. And the gospel comes and says, I'm giving you the power to be made alive, to fight against the current of the way that things happen in the sea. See, a dead thing can always go downstream, but only a living thing can go against the current. We need some power to come in us and make us alive to fight against that current. You know, when it says that we are sons and daughters of disobedience, you know, as a pastor... Do you know how many times I find sons and daughters of parents that were abusive? This sounds harsh, but what it's actually saying is these are the conditions you're born into. You were born a son of disobedience, a daughter of disobedience. And let me tell you, when you have somebody that's been raised up with abusive parents, they are trained to see themselves as worthless They're trained to believe that they will forever have to try and be good enough to earn their parents' love. They are trained to see themselves as lesser than. They're trained to always feel like nothing will ever be good enough. And so they walk around in absolute defeat. And let me tell you, each and every one of us knows that feeling. Each and every one of us has this instinctive desire where we don't feel good enough. I don't feel like I'm a good enough husband. I don't feel like I'm a good enough dad. I don't feel like I'm making it and my dreams are coming true all the time. And what does it do? It rocks my identity. Why? Because this world, my father has trained me to believe that I am only good If I earn everybody's affection and meet everybody's expectation and I'm abused and it leaves you withered, doesn't it? And so now I want you to remember back to Ephesians 1. What is the great delight of God? Oh, before the foundations of the world, He has chosen you. And what is His good pleasure? To adopt you. In this world, this father as a son of disobedience that just leaves me in shame and leaves me in guilt. You want to adopt me out of that? You want to give me a relationship with a father that tells me that your love is not based on my performance? That you love me before I do right or wrong? That I'm yours and nothing can ever change that? Sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. It's like the Bible comes and says, stop hiding. I know who you are. I know your struggle with this. You don't have to hide. You don't put on a mask and say, I'm the one who's got it together. You're wrong. And the Bible knows it. And so you just live out chasing passions. That word is literally the appetites, and we all know this. In this world, we can't find rest. St. Augustine said it best, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. 
But if our appetites are running the show, we'll go over here and hope that this fulfills us. Nope, we'll go over here or up the dosage. And we're constantly running around trying to feed and satisfy an appetite that only the Lord can satisfy. And anybody who's outside of the Lord knows nothing in this world satisfies. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, that Greek word desires is literally thelemata. It's, it's intentionally making you remember Ephesians 1. Thelemata means will. Chapter 1 was, this is the will of God. Oh, to do all these wonderful, kind things for you, to lay himself down, to shed his blood for your forgiveness, to adopt you as sons, all these wonderful things. That's his will. And now in Ephesians 2, Paul is coming and saying, but you're so busy running around trying to fill your appetite and you want to chase your will. Doesn't that sound absurd? Like when I read that, I think, who in the world do I think I am? (laughs) The the eternal mind of an all-powerful, all-loving, gracious, abundant God, his will. And I'm over here going, no, I got this. Mine's better. What? And so we're by nature, children of wrath. We're going down that stream. There's a cliff coming. And dead will follow that stream to our destruction. Like the rest of mankind, there is no one omitted from this. Here's the good news. Verse 4, two of the best words in Scripture. But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were rebelling, even when it was all about me and my will and my appetites and my desires and I wanted nothing to do with you, even then, he made us alive together with Christ. We woke up in the stream Our desires were changed, and we had the power by the Spirit to go against the grain. And by grace you've been saved, raised up with Him, and seated with Him in the heavenly places. You see what's going on here? It's like Paul is so excited. He starts you down in verse 1. And and you're dead in your sins and trespasses, and then God comes, and you're made alive, and then you're raised up, and then you're seated And this, too, is to remind us of how Ephesians 1 ends. When Ephesians 1 is talking about how amazing Jesus is, you know what it says? That he was made alive, that he was raised up, that he was seated in the heavenly places. This shows his immeasurable power. And now, get this. Those same verbs that highlight the power of Jesus... In the Greek, every one of those verbs has three letters in front of it. This is important and powerful and wonderful and geeky. The three letters, S-Y-N, like synonym or synchronized or synoptic gospels, it means the same. We sang that song, the same power that rose Christ from the dead lives in me. And that's exactly what Ephesians is saying. It is saying that when Christ was made alive 2,000 years ago, when he defeated sin and death, you defeated sin and death. 
That when he was raised up, you were raised up with him. He accomplished your salvation when he accomplished his own. And when Jesus was raised up to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and was seated to reign with him, get this. He pulled up a chair for you. Do you get that in the courts of heaven, there is a chair with your name on it? That you reign with Jesus. That in your time on earth, reigning with Christ, you are to bring His will like we pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're an ambassador. Your seat is there. Your citizenship is there. You're to work here. But your victory is already secured. And why does he do this? Verse 7 gives us the purpose statement. It's wild. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. What? So God, wait a minute. He's, he's writing his story, what he wants, what excites him. And he says, my son's going to go to a cross. He's going to shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, for redemption, for adoption, and all that. And it's not like he's just good enough with you making it to heaven. Why does he do all this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable. You'll never reach the end of them. You can't measure them. They can't be contained. The infinite attributes, the infinite goodness, the infinite love and mercy and glory pouring out to you. That's why he does this. So that in the coming ages, he might show you the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness for you. Do you believe that's the heart of God for you right now? Do you believe that you're the purpose behind his story like he says? That his son would be lifted up and glorified. How? By lavishing his love and grace on you. And so, if you still, after coming through far through Ephesians, think that Christianity and God's love and God's favor for you still rest in what you do, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 comes and smashes that to pieces, guys. For it is by grace. I love the acronym for grace. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. For it is by grace, unmerited favor. You have no role in this, nothing to contribute to this except the sin that made your salvation necessary. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. To clarify, this is not your doing. You're never going to be good enough. Leave that abusive father in the past and embrace this new father that loves you because he loves you. Because you're his. You're his treasured possession. This is not your own doing. It is the gift. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. No one can boast. I don't, when I see what he has done to accomplish and how incredible his love is toward me, I don't want to boast. It feels stupid to boast. It's like standing next to the cross going, yep, me and Jesus. No, all him. All him. 
And you know what? Now I get the joy of not boasting in my goodness, but like Paul says, I get to boast in my weakness. I get to go around and show the rest of humanity that I don't walk around having to be good enough and having to be put together and having to earn the Father's love. I get to go around and say I'm an absolute mess, but he loves me. I get to go around saying, until I go to heaven, I'm never going to be perfect. And I'm, you know, God loves me anyway. I get to boast in my weakness. And it's not just that. You have the security when you recognize that it's by grace, a pure gift, not of yourself, nothing you do. When you realize that, you walk around with freedom. You get to take off that mask that religious people sometimes wear because God has already told me who I naturally am. And he, rich in mercy, would die for me. He's expressed my value in his eyes, and that's all that matters. You know, I remember when we were young in marriage, Laura and I, we had some struggles, and, well, I should say I had some struggles. <laughs> and I remember one time it's like life wasn't going like I thought. I'd become a teacher making, you know, nothing. She was a receptionist. She made nothing. Our savings account was flying through the floor. I was doing terrible. I was so busy. I felt like I was failing as a dad, failing as a husband, failing in all these ways. And I began to shut down. Anybody relate to that? I began to almost resent these blessings that God had given to me because they were always a reminder of my failure. And one day, Laura did something that I love. She catches me in the kitchen, grabs me by the shoulders, maybe shakes me a little bit, I don't remember. It's probably a shake in there. Shakes me a little bit and she says, Stop it. This stuff that you provide is not my treasure. You are my treasure. And I believed her. And I felt so free. You know, in Ephesians, I want you to get the sense that God is coming up to you and he's saying, stop it. Stop trying to earn my love. Stop trying to condition your identity and your purpose and your value on what you bring to the table. Stop. What you do is not my treasure. You are my treasure. Laura had this dry erase board that was in our bathroom and it said, I love you because dot, dot, dot. And I'd go in there, and every day or every other day, she'd have written something like, you're a great provider. And I'd look at that and go, uh-huh. The way you love our children. And everything reminded me, like, that's not true. That's not true. I'm failing. Because of the way that you love me. Because of the way you love Jesus. Because of this. Because of that. And when she recognized that I was buried under the shame of feeling like a failure. We had that conversation where she said, you are my treasure. Next day I walk into the bathroom and I see this. I love you, period. And the because was crossed out. That's what the Lord says to you. 
not by your works. It's not of what you bring to the table. I love you, period. And Jesus has taken care of the because. Walk in the freedom of knowing that, that if you're in Christ, I love you, period. And the because is gone. And in God's eternal plan before creation, He not only chose you and adopted you, but He's ordained that you would join in this incredible story that He's writing and allow you to participate in a story. He says this in verse 10, For we are His workmanship. Other places that's translated handiwork. Sometimes it's translated masterpiece. That's just cool. You are His masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. It's like even your life and the good works and the ministry opportunities for you are ready for you. He's written them beforehand for you to walk in. And you know that work, that word workmanship, I love this. The Greek word that's used there is poema. We get the English word poem from that. Kind of like in a sense, God is saying, I have written out a life for you. And when you give and surrender your life to me, you become my poem. This beautiful story that I'm writing. And when I stop and I think about the immeasurable love, how incredibly forgiven, loved, adopted I am in him, It makes me want to say, like, if I'm your poem, God, I'm yours. I I want your story, not mine. I want your will, not mine. I want your desires, not mine. You satisfy. I can't find anything else that does. I'm yours. If I'm your poem, write a good one. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I love your word. You're just so good. I remember those days of feeling dead and sin and trespasses, running from appetite to appetite to appetite, never ever being satisfied. And yet you come rich in mercy with this great love that you have and you allow me to share in your victory. You make me alive. You raise me up. You have seated me in the heavenly places when I absolutely do not deserve it. All so that you can spend all of eternity pouring pouring out your immeasurable riches of grace and kindness to me, to us. Lord, you're good. And we just give you thanks and ask that you would give us hearts to believe the incredible nature of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Today I want to do something a little bit different for our time of reflection. We're going to have two opportunities to worship, but I want you to invite you to sing a particular song and to make it your reflection and your prayer to the Lord in response to the overwhelming goodness that he has toward us. He's rescued us from our history of spiritual abuse in this world, and he's adopted us as his children. As a dad, I can usually tell when one of my kids is afraid or fearful. It's like my little sweet, sweet Leah. If she's afraid, what does she do? She runs, and she'll grab hold of my leg and kind of hide behind my leg. 
and just kind of look around the corner. And she knows that she's safe, loved, hidden behind her father. And even more so, that's your reality. You are utterly safe, secure, loved, cherished when you, like Paul once wrote, are hidden with Christ in God. And so after I get down from the stage, I want to invite you to sing the song with all you've got hidden to your God and your Savior.